Good morning. Uh, yeah, Pastor Jerry, thank you for that um, introduction. It is uh, an honor to be here. Uh, so like he said, um, I pastored for uh, 16 years. And so um, I planted a church uh, most recently eight years ago in the West End. Um, and through a series of uh, events and just uh, life stuff, all good stuff, uh, my wife and I and the elders, we decided um, that I enjoyed and I loved pastoring with all of my heart. Uh, but in the season of life that we're in right now, I've got a six-year-old daughter um, who still loves the church. I've got a wife that still loves me. Uh, and I just wanted to make sure that, it's, that I was done pastoring with both of those things still intact. And so uh, I made the transition out of the pastorate to try to serve uh, God's church more uh, broadly. And so it has been an encouragement uh, to be able to get a chance to do that. Um, shout out to Jared, uh, JT. We met in the pandemic and have built a friendship. And so I'm um, yeah, yeah, honored to uh, be here with y'all. Uh, um, Pastor Jared shared some about a couple of books that I've written, and um, it's, it's hard when you write a book on prayer uh, because people assume that you're some sort of expert at it, all right? Uh, every book that I've written, I've written out of my failures, right? I just chronicled what not to do, and you write those things down, and then you can flip the inverse of it, and it becomes a book, all right? So here's what I want to say for anybody that's nervous about talking about prayer or you feel like you're bad at it. Um, I think the only reason I've been able to write a book on it is that, like, misery loves company. And so many people can commiserate uh, with me as I talk about how bad I am at it. If you struggle with prayer like I do, I've got three um, not so encouraging encouragements for you to help start off your time. The very first one uh, is this. If you struggle with prayer, uh, you're not the only one. Type struggle with prayer into Google and you'll get 40 billion results of people that struggle with the same thing. All right, two, if you struggle with prayer, I want you to know this. Even if you find something helpful in our time here today, uh, this won't be the last time that you struggle with prayer. All right, there is not some magical bullet, right? Prayerlessness is not like the chicken pox, right? You rub some calamine lotion of Mark 14 on it and you're all good. It, it doesn't work like that. Prayerlessness is more like the flu. And you can get the flu every year. Prosperity makes us prayerless. Because we take for granted the good things that God has provided for us and we attribute success to us and it makes us not pray. Adversity can make us prayerless because we remember that God is in control and we blame him for all the bad things that go wrong. All right? So prayerlessness is more like the flu because prayerlessness is rooted in pride. And I hope that this text will help to break some of that from us. And lastly, 
Uh, if you struggle with prayer today, I want you to know there's hope uh, because people worse off than you uh, had become the pillars of the church. All right, so we're going to talk about a couple of failures in prayer and see how God uses that to shape, up, uh, shape us. So if you would, I'm going to ask you all to do this for me as we turn to Mark chapter 14. Uh, if you would stand with me as we read Mark chapter 14. All right. We're starting in verse 32. When you got it, say, I got it. All right, if you still need more time, say, I need more time. All right, Mark chapter 14 comes right after Mark chapter 13, if that helps anybody in here. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 32, and it says this. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little farther, fell to the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour it might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless... Not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, you sleep? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And again, he came and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. This is what I love. The Bible is so human. Y'all know what it's like to fall asleep in somebody's presence and they look at you and you're like, yo, I don't even know what to say, right? I was gone. It says this, they did not know what to say to him. Then he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. See, the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up Let's go see my betrayer is near. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you with a great sense of our unworthiness, a great sense of our neediness. Would you remind us that our neediness is not a liability if we have somebody to help us? You are our great helper, Father. I pray that we would see our neediness and our dependence as an asset for us to tap into the true strength that only you can provide. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Why don't you take your seats? There's a quote from one of my favorite philosophers that has shaped the course of my life. And what he says uh, is this very profound, simply. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. The philosopher is uh, Mike Tyson, and <laughs> Mike Tyson said it on the eve of a big fight. A reporter comes to him and says, what are you going to do about your opponent? They're quick, they're fast, they're strong, they can move laterally. And Mike so eloquently says... 
Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And then they curl up like a rat and go back into a corner. His point was this. No, 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 look, look, look. Everybody thinks that they're stronger than they are until tragedy hits them. And then they become very, very aware that all of their plans were tentative, depending. I think this became real to me uh, when eight years ago, last month, I got uh, punched in the mouth. And um, it was an event that took place. Uh, I was speaking at a conference in April in Orlando. We go out to dinner. I get repeated calls from my mom. I call her, she asks me to check in on my brother. I call around and talk to my God brother. And all I hear is, uh, Sam passed. And I thought he said passed out. I'm like, wake him up. He's, he's like, no, 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 Sam passed away. My 32 year old brother who was a pastor, wife, kids five, three and one, suddenly died without cause, and it was the second biggest surprise of my life. The reason why I say it was the second biggest surprise of my life is because the first biggest surprise of my life took place in the weeks that followed. Here I was, somebody who had already pastored for eight years and was six weeks away from getting ready to plant the church in the West End that I was just at, and everything I believed about the goodness of God didn't slowly fall apart, it, it crumbled in an instant. And I was shocked at how quickly all the stuff that I preached and shared felt false. C.S. Lewis, when he's reflecting on the death of his wife, says this, this is what tragedy does. Tragedy helps you and I to be reminded of the fact that the temple of faith that we think that we have is really nothing more than a house of cards. And that's how I felt. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. That's what suffering does. It, it blindsides us. It's unexpected. It's unimaginable. And the prospect of it, we can sit in a room like this and daydream about how we'll overcome the worst things. But I want you to know, when you actually find yourself blindsided by suffering and you're wading in those waters, nobody feels like an Olympic swimmer. You're doing all that you can to stay afloat. One of my favorite books in the Bible is Ecclesiastes. And what I love about that book is you get this guy who basically lives the life of your dreams. He gets everything that he wants, and the purpose of that book is to show you, no, no, listen, there's going to be certain folks in here, and your temptation is going to be prosperity, and you're going to find the emptiness of it all. And that's well and good, but that's not all of us. Every one of us here is going to be brought very, very low by adversity. It is unimaginable, but it is an inevitability that will find you. And the question is, 
How do we face adversity, not if it comes, when it comes? That is the most important question that you will have to answer because what you'll quickly find out is that it is impossible to get past something that will inevitably find its way into your future. You cannot outrun tragedy any more than a dog can outrun its tail. And so instead of daydreaming about prosperity and all the things that we will do, what we need to do, what's most important for us to do, what is incumbent on us, the people of God, to do is to prepare for tragedy in advance. Especially for those of us who lead people in any way, shape, or form. If you're a parent, an older sibling, an employer, a pastor, because what you'll quickly find out is that you're in charge of leading a group of people and the people that you lead forget that you are as weak as them. They forget that you're cut from the same cloth. And if we don't prepare ourselves honestly to deal with the adversity that's going to find us, then we're going to find ourselves in a place where we do the people that we are surrounded by and the people that look up to us more harm than good. So the question that I want to ask and answer today is this. How do we face adversity and steer our lives towards a favorable scenario when the worst is not here but when we know that it's coming? And for that, we're going to turn to Mark chapter 14. Here's a little bit of context. All right, Mark chapter 14, uh, Jesus' prayer in the garden is sandwiched in between these two events, the Last Supper and the betrayal in the garden. All right, here's what takes place. At the Last Supper, Jesus is giving his disciples an invitation to be weak. So what he says is, hey, y'all, I know you better than you know yourself. And I want you to know this. I'm getting ready to go to the cross. I'm getting ready to be betrayed. And do you know what all of y'all are going to do? You're going to run. Jesus doesn't say it as an indictment. He says it as an invitation to be weak. What an amazing thing that you and I have a God who knows the very worst about us, but that doesn't drive him away from us. It drives him towards a cross so that no discovery about our weaknesses can disillusion God the way that you and I are so often disillusioned about ourselves when we surprise ourselves with things that go wrong. That safety, that security, and Jesus gives them this invitation to be weak, uh, and Peter, James, and John do not return the RSVP. So what Peter says is this, Jesus, um, why don't you save your prayers for me? I've got my determination. Peter, James, and John in Mark 8 through 10, as Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, James and John come through and they have their mom pull Jesus over to the side and say, hey, Jesus, when you get into your kingdom, right, as you're driving, do you mind if my sons ride shotgun?" And so you've got these group of folks professing that they're stronger than they are. Jesus is trying to give them an invitation to be weak. So do you know what he's going to do? He's going to stop preaching. He's going to start demonstrating. 
Because when words fail, demonstrations do something that words can't. They're more powerful. When it comes to the definition of the word hot, a red stove is going to do a better job than any dictionary. When it comes to the power of prayer, Jesus' prayer on his deathbed is going to do better than any sermon on the mount. So he's going to demonstrate, and that's where we find ourselves in Mark chapter 14. I'm going to tip my hat at the beginning and give you my sermon in a sentence, and that is this. True strength comes from complete and total surrender. True strength comes from complete and total surrender. We strengthen our hands for service to God by surrendering our hearts in prayer to God. All right, so here's the movement in the text. We're going to treat this thing like we paint a, a wall, all right? When you're getting ready to paint a wall, the first thing that you do is you'll throw up primer, and all that does is it gets the paint ready to stick, and then you'll throw up the paint, and then you walk out of the room once you're done. That's what this text is going to feel like. Here's the primer, Mark chapter 14, verse 32 to 34. The primer is this. Um, you are not as strong as you think that you are. You are not as strong as you think that you are. Look here at verse 32. It says this. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane. Let's stop right there. That word literally means olive press. Gethsemane means olive press. So I want you to hear this. All right. The oil that came from olives that were used to anoint kings, priests, dedicate sacrifices to God. That precious oil only comes from the olives out of a time of intense pressure. They come to this place and Jesus, hear this, is leading them into a time of intense pressure. And I want you to know this, church, everything that feels bad to you isn't bad for you. Sometimes we find ourselves in precarious positions because we were dummies and we did things that we shouldn't have done. Sometimes we find ourselves in those places, not because we ran away from God, but because we followed him into the most frustrating times. Jesus leads them into this time of intense pressure. And look here. And he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. But look at this. Look at the particular people that he brings with them. He took Peter, James, and John with him. Why those three? Why not all the rest of the 12? I think Jesus took those three because like we talked about, these are the three out of the 12 at least that professed their strength when Jesus was trying to give them permission to be weak and needy. So Jesus is going to come and teach them a lesson. All right, um, I've got a six-year-old daughter at home. She just turned... Uh, six uh, last month. Uh, side story has nothing to do with a sermon, um, but uh, my daughter's living a very different life than I did. All right, so uh, we had friends in Scotland, and so we took her and her mom and my wife's mom to Scotland uh, uh, about a month ago, and uh, my wife and her mom are terrible flyers, so we let them sit together, and me and my daughter have a great time. We got this, uh, 
we got the first class upgrade from Atlanta to JFK and they put us in a pod and the beds like lay down, right? Um, so then we get on the JFK flight to Scotland in the regular seats. And my daughter sits back and she tries to go back and she's like, um, I'm like, sweetheart, you don't have a bed here. She's like, what do you mean I ain't got a bed, right? So that's her feisty, right? But she's been feisty since birth. Uh, she was born premature, 30 weeks, little old thing, three and a half pounds when she was born. So by the time we brought her home from the hospital, she was four pounds. And I remember we bring her home, she's four pounds. And my nephew Jackson, who's two years old at the time, he comes to her um, and he doesn't talk to her in his voice. He talks to her in like baby talk, in what he thinks that a baby would talk like. And some of y'all laugh, y'all think it's cute. I thought it was condescending. So I pulled them over. <laughs> I pulled them over to the side and I'm like, yo, Jackson, I know you think you're different than her, but you are in fact a baby. Your subject verb agreement is atrocious. And I just start to explain them. No, no, Jackson, I know you think you're different than her, but you're actually the same. You're just as needy as her. Jesus pulls Peter, James, and John aside the way that I took Jackson aside. And he's saying, no, no, listen, I know you think that y'all are a cut above the rest, but let me show you that you're not as strong as you think that you are. And then it goes on and look at this. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. In a story, a narrator is going to give you, the reader, information that the characters don't know, just to bring you in the loop. So here, look, Mark says Jesus is deeply distressed and troubled. So we know that. But look at verse 34. Look at what Jesus chooses to, to do with that. And he said to them, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. Why is that so important? One, Jesus isn't using hyperbole. When he says, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death, he actually means it. It is terrifying to know that you've done wrong and you've got to stand in front of a judge or your parents or somebody to give an account for the things that you've done wrong. It is terrifying. It is soul crushing to know that you've got to stand in front of God one day and give an account for everything that you've done wrong. When this says that Jesus was grieved to the point of death, one of the things that we as Christians believe is that when it comes to sin, there are no sins that are benign. God doesn't give warnings. God defers payment, but he never gives a warning. His wrath is stored up, and one day, all of it is going to come out, and Jesus knows that he is going to be that ransom. So when he says, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death, he doesn't say it the way that I say to my wife, sweetheart, I'm starving to death, my stomach is touching my back, right? <laughs> Jesus, Jesus means it. And what's so important is this, he's bringing a group of guys with him. Jesus is God in the flesh, the son of man. He knows how this thing is going to turn out. And yet, 
He's sharing his weakness with people that are professing their strength. You and I think that we impact people by the wisdom stones that we hurl at them. I want you to know the people in your life are far more impacted by the weakness that you share with them than by the wisdom that you hurl at them. I've been in school studying the Bible since 2006. We've had countless people live with us. And after they leave, I expect them to be shaped and formed by all the sermons that they've heard. But what they constantly come back to is they say, man, I lived with you and I saw how much of a jerk that you could be, but I could see uh, how willing you were to apologize and that was what shaped me. I want you to know that you have something amazing to share with the people that you lead, and it is not your wisdom, however great you think it is. It's your weakness. You're not as strong as you think you are. And I want you to know this. That is some of the best news that you're going to hear all day. because it keeps you moving away from relying on yourself for strength and leaning into an all-powerful one. Look here at verse 35 to 40, and we're going to talk about the prayer, right? This is the paint on, on the wall. Now, the purpose of this story is the context of prayer versus prayerlessness but I would be remiss if we didn't spend time on the actual prayer. I want you to see this. He went a little farther, fell to the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said this, look, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Prayer is at least two things. Confidence in God's ability and contentment with God's activity. Prayer is one part asking God for help and another part asking God for hope. Here's the first one, help. He starts off and says, God, I know all things are possible for you. <clears throat> there is no prayer without this. There's no prayer with a deep and abiding belief that God can do the impossible. Sherlock Holmes, I love reading all of those stories. All right? One of the things you find out is as you read it, uh, Sherlock Holmes is not written from the perspective of Sherlock Holmes, nor is it written from the perspective of a narrator that stands back. It's actually written from the perspective of his homie, John Watson. And John Watson says it this one time. There's this case. It's a mystery to anybody. And John Watson will use this phrase. He, he says this. Um, so accustomed did I become to Sherlock's invariable success that the very possibility of his failing had ceased to enter into my mind. He said... I spent so much time with Sherlock, and I saw him do these amazing things 
that when a problem came through the front door, I never wondered if he was going to solve it. I wondered how he was going to do this one. When Jesus is praying, I want you to know this. You and I all put God in boxes. We believe that God can do these small things. And then with each feat that he does, these boxes break. Right? The very first time God healed a blind man, folks were like, yo, God can heal somebody that's blind. The very first time God healed somebody that was lame. It's, no, no, no. God can heal somebody that can't walk. God can raise the dead. God can heal an addict and our boxes grow. Jesus had no such boxes. He knew. He had a deep belief that God can do anything. I had a professor in school that would say it like this, uh, what God has done in the past is both a plan and a model of what he will do in the future, although he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. So look, Jesus finds himself with no such boxes on God. So the first part of this prayer is not a formality. When he said, no, no, I'm, Father, I know all things are possible for you. I believe it. But he doesn't stop there. Prayer does start with a deep and abiding belief that God can do the impossible. But I want you to know this. Although prayer starts there, peace is never found there. Here's what I mean. If you believe that God can do the impossible and you set your hope on God doing the impossible for you in the way you want it every time you want it, you're going to be severely disappointed and you're never going to find peace. Here's the quickest way to discontentment. The quickest way for discontentment is for you and you and you and me to hold God hostage to an outcome that he's never promised. It's like waiting in the cold and the rain for a bus that's never coming. So Jesus says this, look, God, I know all things are possible for you. I have confidence in your ability, yet not what I will, but what you will. But I have contentment in whatever you choose is the best way. But then look at verse 39. It says this, once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And he came and he found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. They didn't know what to say to him. Then he came a third time and he said, are you still sleeping? So it seems like this. Jesus didn't just go down on the ground, pray these 23 words, hop up, change. It seemed as if he was continually wrestling with God in prayer, wrestling his heart into submission, agonizing. So it's not just help and hope. Prayer is not an incantation. 
It's this actual work of surrendering our hearts to God. And I want you to know, praying the same thing over and over and over again is not a lack of faith. It shows the presence of faith. It shows that you believe that my answer will not come apart from God, so I'm going to continue to bring him the same thing. When my daughter was two years old, we got an invitation to go to Orlando to speak, and they said, we're going to take you to, uh, you and your family to Disney. Uh, and we did that in November, and I made the mistake of telling a two-year-old that we were going to go to Disney in August. <laughs> and so every day, Dad, are we going to Disney today? No, sweetheart, that's not how time works. It's going to be some, Dad, are we going? Are we going? And she continued to persistently ask me every day, look, it wasn't because she disbelieved my promise. She believed it. Her persistence showed that she was just waiting on me to respond, and she knew that she wasn't going to go to Disney apart from me. When we continue to wrestle our hearts into submission in prayer. We're doing nothing different than what Jesus did in the garden. True strength comes from total surrender, and surrendering our hearts for, in prayer is not easy work. But like I said, look, I want y'all to remember, the point of this story is not just the content of this prayer, It is the context of this prayer. What you're supposed to see is the contrast, the difference between what Jesus says and does. I'm weak. I'm grieved to the point of death. Y'all are going to be weak. It's okay. And what does Jesus do with that weakness? He prays. True strength comes from total surrender. The disciples, they say, no, I'm strong. I'm okay. And what do they do with all that self-confidence in the garden? They sleep. And when there's an actual chance presented for these two groups to show their resolve, Jesus stands tall and the disciples run away from people that aren't even chasing them. Do you remember how I said this story was sandwiched in between their aspiration to be strong and an actual event? It's sandwiched in the way that a vegan sandwich is sandwiched. Surrounded by promise with nothing but sadness and disappointment (laughs) in the middle. They had a chance, but they didn't know. Why? What can you trace it back to? Their prayer. Look here. The primer's on the wall. You're not as strong as you think that you are. The good news, that means that you can lean in and depend on somebody who's willing to help you. Neediness is not a liability if you have somebody that can meet every need. And then at the end, one of the tricky things about prayer is this. Sometimes we pray for things and it's confusing. It's hard for us to know. Did God actually respond to my prayer? How did God respond to my prayer? Uh, Do you know what is one surefire way to decipher God's response to your prayer? Providence. 
how things actually turn out. Look at this. Verse 41. Then he came a third time and he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. Look, see the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. So Jesus is praying, God, is there any other way? Not my will, but yours be done. God, if there's any other way, not my will, but yours be done. I mean, if there is another way that you can think of, but not my will, but yours be done. And he looks up and he sees a mob coming to him with furrowed brows, torches, and pitchforks. And what he says is, um, I guess God said no. But look at verse 42. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. He doesn't even wait for them to come. Confident that he's in the will of God. He says, I am safer running into the hands of danger than I am running away from it because I'm confident that this is what God wants for me. That's power. That's strength. That's confidence. If you think I'm making too much of this point, I want you to learn a little something about crucifixion. There's an amazing book by Fleming Rutledge. Um, she wrote a 600-page book on crucifixion. Uh, and as you read through this book, one of the things that you find out is uh, crucifixion was actually a horrendous way to die, so, hor hor so horrendous that the way that they did it in the history of the world actually existed for a short period of time. So there is only a short window in human history that somebody could have died this way. And Jesus entered into time and space to die this way. What separates the four Gospels in your Bible from the rest of the Gospels that we don't put as a part of this canon is this. There's a lot of Gospels or there's a lot of books that focus on the life and death of, or, or on the life of Jesus. But these four Gospels, each one of them spends at least a third of their time on the last week of his life, the death. So much so that you could talk about the crucifixion as the main point of the Gospels with the life and ministry of Jesus being the prelude to the climax. Crucifixion was a horrendous way to die. It was agonizing. It was brutal. It was shameful. <coughs> and yet... Every one of the gospel writers, when you look at the scene that it places Jesus in the most agony, literarily, do you know where it is? In the garden in prayer, not on the cross. He was in agony on the cross, but the point that they're trying to make as they write is, no, no, look, look, look. When Jesus is on his way to the cross, this is how the Gospels portray him, through the trials, through the beatings and the floggings. In front of people who could set him free, Jesus seems cool and he doesn't recant. 
when people blindfold them and smack them on the mouth, he's still spicy enough to give them a little sarcastic retort. On the way to the cross, with blood spilling out of his back, so weak that they have to get somebody else to carry the cross, Jesus has enough presence of mind to look at his mom and, and to say, yo, mom, John's going to take care of you. John, would you take care of my mom? On the cross, as he's pierced in his side, they're painting a picture of a Jesus that is calm enough to pray to God and to ask for forgiveness for the people that are actively doing him wrong. And with his last breath, the gospel writers don't paint him gasping for air as much as they do him spending his time using his last words to reassure a guilty yet repentant criminal that he will be with his Lord in paradise. Oh, but the agony, the hard work was in the garden, surrendering his heart in prayer, strengthened his hands for unbelievable service. I want you to know that inviting others into your weakness instills in them a source of true strength. If you think I'm making too much of this point, all you have to do is turn over your Bible a few pages to Acts and do you know what you get in a 40-day span? You get people, Peter, James, and John, namely, that are completely different. They've changed. How did they change? Why did they change? Here's why they changed. Because they believed in the resurrection. They believed that Jesus actually got up from the grave, that his payment for sin counted. They were redeemed and secured and saved. And that resurrection drove them to their knees to prayer. Here's what I want you to know as we leave, church. So often when we think about our struggling prayer lives, we think of regiments or routines. All right, I've just got to do this and X, Y, and Z. And I want you to know, no, no, no. That's not what moves you to pray. The regiments and the routines are instructions, they are directions. And a GPS is great to get you where you need to go so long as your car has gas. If it doesn't have any fuel, all the directions in the world will make you a very intelligent parked car. So what is the fuel? What's the thing that we really need to change about us if we're going to live lives of prayer? It is this, the resurrection. And here's what I want you to know. The way that you pray, more than the way that you do just about anything, reaffirms or undermines your belief in the resurrection. The way that you pray reaffirms or undermines your belief in the resurrection. Here's what that means. Uh, this fall will make 16 years of marriage for my wife and I. And so we've been married um, 16 years, and I still don't know where the measuring cups are in our house. 
right? So there's times where I want to, like, make a dish, make cookies or things like that, and I'll go to my wife and I'll be like, yo, Sean, where's the three-fourths cut? And she'll be like, John, we've been married 16 years, and you still don't know where they are. Or there's times where, you know, she'll be in her Bible, she will have read the words of Christ, and she'll respond, and she'll say things like, um, have I been with you this long, and you still don't know where the <laughs> cups are. My favorite is when she'll say this. Um, she'll say, John, what would you do if I weren't here? That, my friends, is a rhetorical question. <laughs> but they're more fun to answer than they are to ask. So I'll think to myself, well, if you weren't here, then I would actually have to look for it myself. And if history is an indicator of the future, I'm going to work really, really hard, and I'm not going to find it, and I'm going to put myself through all this trouble. Why should I trouble myself if I could just bother you for a little bit? <laughs> I've been married 16 years. I keep all of that in my head. <laughs> what I say to her is this, no, no, no. But, sweetheart, you are here. You're here. If you weren't here, it would be a whole thing. But you actually are here. I believe in her real and abiding presence. I bring that up to say, what if tragedy befell you? What if the person that you looked up to the most in the entire world died suddenly? What's the first thing that you would do? Would you inform people? Would you try to replace them in your life? What if somebody that you knew and you trusted with your livelihood and your well-being ran off with all of your cash? What's the first thing that you would do? Would you call a lawyer? Would you immediately put your hands to the plow and try to work? What would you do if tomorrow covenant fellowship exploded and people came in by the droves and the church was big and you were trying to find some way to connect them? What's the first thing that you would do? Would you set up a small group structure? Would you work things to make sure people are connected and they had friendship? What would you do if this week things changed for us in our world and anything that you said that was remotely Christian got, thrown, got, got you thrown into jail? Would you gather lawyers to help you think and strategize to how to be faithful on your job? What would you do? I look at the diverse crowd. What would you do? What would be the first thing that you did if the summer of 2016 or 2020 blew up again and there was ethnic tension in the life of the church that threatened to rip y'all apart, what's the first thing that you would do? Would we start a forum? Would you find ways to talk and address these things? If you think that I just pulled all those examples out of thin air, I want you to know I didn't. All I did was walk you through Acts chapter 1 through 6. In Acts 1, Jesus, the person they looked up to spiritually the most, died and he was gone. 
in Acts 1, Judas, the person that was in charge of the money, dipped. He's gone. In Acts chapter 2, the church explodes. 3,000 people come in one day. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John get thrown in jail for preaching about Christ. In Acts chapter 6, there's an issue of ethnic tension that goes on in the life of the church, and it threatens to rip apart the fabric of what God was trying to do. And do you know what the church does with every single one of those encounters? They have a prompt and impromptu prayer meeting. Jesus is gone, let's pray about what God would have us do next. Judas is gone, let's pray about what God would have us do next. The church grows, all right, y'all, let's gather and let's pray about what God would have us do next. Peter and John get thrown in jail. They pray, God, they didn't pray, God, get them out. In Acts 4, they prayed, sovereign Lord, we know that you can do it all. Ah, but give us boldness in case we follow in their footsteps. Acts 6, ethnic tension is getting ready to rip apart the fabric of the church, and the church gathers to pray. I believe in each of the instances, Peter and the rest of the 12 likely did what I did with my wife. They ran into a problem and they say, what should we do because Jesus isn't here? And they said, well, if history is an indicator of the future, then we're going to work real hard to find a solution and we're going to mess things up worse than before. But then they say, no, no, no. why should we trouble ourselves? if we can trouble him. No, no. Yeah, if he wasn't here, we'd have to work this stuff out on our own. But he is here. And we can trouble him because to him it's no trouble at all. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray that an awareness of the fact that you have conquered the grave that there is a debt to pay for sin, and the good news is that we don't have to pick up the check because it's been covered, and you are living and alive and real. I pray that reality would drive us to embrace our weakness, to rejoice in it, to boast in it, because we know that it's not a liability, Father. Give us the grace to constantly strengthen our hands for service to you by surrendering our hearts in prayer to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.